On the slab for dissection today, John Adams's Chamber Symphony. Now, the origins of this piece are extremely interesting. Let me read you Adams's own words. I originally set out to write a children's piece, and my intentions were to sample the voices of children and work them into a fabric of acoustic and electronic instruments. But before I began that project, I had another one of those strange interludes that often lead to a new piece. This one involved a brief moment of what Melville called the shock of recognition. I was sitting in my studio studying the score of Schoenberg's Chamber Symphony, and as I was doing so, I became aware that my seven-year-old son Sam was in the adjacent room watching cartoons—good cartoons, old ones from the fifties. The hyperactive, insistently aggressive, and acrobatic scores for the cartoons mixed in my head with the Schoenberg music. Itself hyperactive, acrobatic, and not a little aggressive, and I realised suddenly how much these two traditions had in common. For a long time, my music has been conceived for large forces and has involved broad brushstrokes on big canvases. Chamber music, with its inherently polyphonic and democratic sharing of roles, was always difficult for me to compose. But the Schoenberg Symphony provided a key to unlock that door. And it did so by suggesting a format in which the weight and mass of a symphonic work could be married to the transparency and mobility of a chamber work. The tradition of American cartoon music also suggested a further model for a music that was at once flamboyantly virtuosic and polyphonic. Coming up later on, we'll hear a workshop I gave with my ensemble excellent device on Adams's Chamber Symphony. But before delving into that, let's explore his two key inspirations. Firstly, Schoenberg's first chamber symphony of 1906. This is a tremendously important piece of music, lying as it does in the gap between late overripe romanticism and the new way, the beginning of the abysmal century of wars where tonality, everything sweet, known, and reasonable, was to be tossed aside. The piece is made up of different strands of romantic thought. But not wholesomely applied to each other, a box of magic tricks which appears to be malfunctioning. I say appears, as in fact this multi-layered work is rigorously organised. As Schoenberg himself said, in music there is no form without logic, no logic without unity. One in the eye for the previous twenty years of bulging sensual excess in some quarters of music. Then, but Schoenberg doesn't claim that composition is a totally cerebral process. He called it a slowed-down improvisation. Often, one cannot write down fast enough to keep up with the stream of ideas. He also said improvisations come unconsciously, and you formulate solutions without noticing a problem has confronted you. Now, the precedents to this piece, written for a small orchestra, a chamber ensemble of soloists, one thinks most obviously of the 1870 work Siegfried Idyll, which Richard Wagner wrote as a birthday present for his wife. But also, and more pertinently, Mahler's Kindertodenlieder, written between 1901 and 4, the first great example of a new hybrid, the chamber orchestra, where less is more, where whole worlds can be expressed through modest means, the highly sophisticated use and exploitation of a smaller number of instruments to create symphonic effect that had ever hitherto been imagined possible.
It's important to remember just how much Schoenberg admired Mahler. His third symphony had had a great impact on Schoenberg, and that famously knotty and eclectic finale to Mahler's seventh symphony had provided for Schoenberg a gateway into a new world of understanding. What was explicit in Mahler for Schoenberg was a sense of an end, a full stop, the death rattle of extreme tonal expression, and the unveiling of a new way. Schoenberg's chamber symphony is more than anything an exploration of this. Schoenberg quite literally throws down the gauntlet, but with some degree of caution. Still, he's not quite ready to renounce tonality. And in terms of this new hybrid chamber ensemble, chamber orchestra, a small pokey sports car in comparison to the air-cushioned sedan that is the symphony orchestra, there are just fifteen instruments, fifteen voices competing, clamouring for attention. Schoenberg's chamber symphony is based on three fundamental building blocks. Firstly, the use of sequences of notes pitched a fourth apart. The use of fourths like this is often explicit, like the horn melody. In a mood of stormy jubilation, as Schoenberg said himself, which goes off like a rocket at the beginning of the first fast section. But equally often, the fourths are more difficult to discern. There's just so much information in practically every bar. The second fundamental ingredient is the use of whole tone scales. A normal scale, major or minor, includes some leaps of a semitone, others of a tone. A whole tone scale has only intervals or leaps of a tone. The third really important ingredient to Schoenberg's chamber symphony is the use of the Neapolitan interval. No one quite knows why it's called this. It exists in the music of the early Baroque, i.e., Purcell and Carissimi, sometime before the so-called Neapolitan school of composers. In other words, composers who studied in Naples in the 18th century. Composers like Alessandro Scarlatti and Pergolesi. In any case, the Neapolitan is the chord one semitone above the tonic. Here's a really famous example. And here comes the Neapolitan.
In the key of E major, the home key of Schoenberg's chamber symphony, it's F major. It may look close on a keyboard, but harmonically, it's about as far away as you can get. It's as if Schoenberg is saying, if I can constantly find points of connection between these two most remote chords, or tonal centres, then I've arrived at a point where any chord can connect with another. And thus you can see he's butting up right against the door marked atonality. It's just he doesn't quite open the door in this particular piece. But it's clear that for Schoenberg here, the Neapolitan tonic relationship is far more important than the traditional cornerstone of tonal music, the dominant tonic relationship. The Neapolitan again. Or it can crop up as F minor to E major. Beginning as he means to continue then, his opening slow four bars before the piece proper breaks out contains all three of these fundamental building blocks. The passing around of fourths, a chord in bar three which is made up entirely of notes from one whole tone scale, and a cadence in the fourth bar into F major, the Neapolitan of his root key E major. Schoenberg was always exploring different forms of integration, how seemingly unrelated elements might relate, and how to draw together multiple musical narratives. To this end, while there are four discernible sections to the chamber symphony, a first movement or exposition, a scherzo, a slow movement, and a finale or recapitulation, they're all bound together in one continuous 20-minute sweep. The music hardly pauses to draw breath. There is a world of satisfaction to be gleaned from analysing this great work, bar by bar, highly complex, though I know it is. And you can hear a more complete analysis of the work on the website, so you go to bbc.co.uk slash radio3 and follow the links to Discovering Music. But, above and beyond the astonishing intellectual prowess Schoenberg demonstrates, this is music in a hurry. There is a sense that it can glimpse the future and is greedily devouring everything in its midst, in order to find the new way. But what lies around the corner, Schoenberg's great new discovery, i.e. serialism, which not only sanctions but celebrates atonality, is not quite attained yet. Schoenberg himself said that this piece achieved the perfect amalgamation of melody with harmony, in that both of them participate equally in melting down more outlying tonal relationships to form a unity and draw logical conclusions from the problems with which they have landed themselves. This means, at the same time, a major step towards the emancipation of the dissonance. Schoenberg's Chamber Symphony provides a perfect bridge between last-ditch romanticism and the shock of the new. So let's listen to a performance now that I gave with my ensemble excellent device of Schoenberg's first Chamber Symphony, Opus 9. You're listening to Discovering Music on BBC Radio 3 with me, Charles Hazelwood. And just then I was conducting Excellent Device in that performance of Schoenberg's first chamber symphony, 
a work whose impact on John Adams is palpably displayed in his own chamber symphony, the focus of our programme today. Part of Adams' great success as a contemporary composer is his accessible synthesis of serious classical ambition with a vernacular touch. So, as I said much earlier, whilst Schoenberg's chamber symphony is an ongoing inspiration here, Adams has created a situation where American cartoon music meets it head-on. It's an amazing collision of worlds. Remember Roadrunner? Hyperactive, acrobatic and aggressive world, as Adams describes it, of Looney Tunes, of the Roadrunner, a character particularly close to Adams' chamber symphony, as we shall see. So, let's join the workshop I gave with Excellent Device at the Cheltenham Festival on Adams' masterpiece, with a short section from the first movement which perfectly illustrates the headlong hyperactivity which is Schoenberg's chamber symphony, but which is also that darn coyote a constant barrage of activity. Not music for the faint-hearted, ladies and gentlemen. Now, this work has three movements to it, unlike the Schoenberg, which formed something of a model for it, which is just in one continuous movement. The titles of Adams's three movements give a strong sense of the world of the piece. The first movement is entitled Mongrel Airs. Originally, Adams wanted to call it Discipline et Punir. But then, when a British music critic accused his music of lacking breeding, he decided to retitle it Mongrel Airs. Now, there's a whole frame of references which lie within this piece, beyond the world of Schoenberg and the world of cartoons. There's a lot of two pieces by Stravinsky, his octet, and also The Soldier's Tale. In addition, a work by Mio, one of the first great jazz scores for the concert hall, the ballet La Création du Monde. Now, John Adams established himself as a composer through a particular school of American music which is known as minimalism. Just in case you don't know what that is, minimalism is essentially making maximum effect out of minimal means, taking very, very small melodic cells and letting them kind of accrue, building a whole kind of wall of sound which very, very slowly metamorphoses into something else. It's a bit like one of those 1970s lava lamps. Movement sort of gathered momentum in the 1960s through composers like Lamont Young, Terry Riley, then along came Steve Reich and Philip Glass, and then the next generation down, well, a little bit younger anyway, John Adams. But very quickly, John Adams decided to take his own very specific and particular direction, which borrowed from minimalism but went on in a very different way. And indeed, so many people now see Adams' music in many senses as a critique of minimalism. He's even been accused of corrupting minimalism's purity. But that, I suppose, is his great strength. 
He's taken a muscular, essentially American form and bent it, reconfigured it to suit his own purpose. Okay, I want to just uh, disentangle some of the multitude of different ideas which explode off the page right in the opening bars of this first movement, Mongrel Airs. First of all, very high and sinewy, oboe, violin, viola and cello, effectively trilling on just D and E flat, two notes, just a semitone apart. So key to understanding the work as a whole, it is, so much of the time, highly chromatic. Next, I'm going to add in the synthesizer, which is set against that trilling in triplets with an equally high D and A flat. Now, putting that on one side for a minute, simultaneously we have trumpet with the first of many stepwise ascents, semitone by semitone, from G natural, finally, to B natural. Then we've got the piccolo and the E-flat clarinet in a shrill unison, and the B-flat clarinet playing behind them in a kind of cannon. And the whole bound together by a relentless cowbell, which is reminiscent of Adams's great fanfare for orchestra, you may know, Short Ride in a Fast Machine. That's a woodblock, but here we have cowbell. And so the piece as a whole explodes outwards, a bit like the Big Bang. Now at exactly this moment, you just had a little taste of it in fact, the cello and the bass come in with a walking scalic bass line. It sounds almost serial, like the music that Schoenberg created, the idea of having a sequence of notes where no note is repeated until all the other ones in the series have been played. You could say that approach to composition is the antithesis of minimalism. Although rhythmically, when you hear it here, it sounds like a minimalist ostinato a recurring and repeating figure coming round and round. And above it, you hear the violin grabbing a solo, playing rough sixths, double stops, that is two notes simultaneously, thoroughly reminiscent of the fiddle in Stravinsky's Soldier's Tale. Well, along the way, there are also trademark minimalist gestures, repeating cells which barely develop. Just a quick word now about the instrumentation of the ensemble for Adams's Chamber Symphony. It has, like the Schoenberg, 15 players. But Adams has more brass and, crucially, a battery of percussion. Also, a synthesizer with 15 preset sounds. 
Very, very modern colour, that, of course. Now, a lot of the time in this music, there's an almost Charles Ives-like overlapping of musics. The idea of totally sort of disconnected musics being allowed to occur simultaneously. And according to Franco Terry, this, is, this music in general is less about the rarefied world of Schoenberg and more about the cacophony of contemporary city life. And so, we now get a slow melody set against a busy collage. Put Ives on one side for a minute. This is absolutely derived from Stravinsky's Wind Octet. Let me play you a bit from one of the variations in that work. And now, John Adams. I've talked already about ascending scales in this music. They're a fairly constant hallmark, and they start to sound a bit like those Formula One arcade games. You know the ones where you sit in a kind of box with a steering wheel and you've got a video screen in front of you, and the soundtrack is... You get the picture. Here's a new texture, all based around a falling third. Yes, the regular doorbell, ladies and gentlemen. Now, listen to the piccolo and the E-flat clarinet and the synthesizer. You hear the synthesizer there with a kind of honky-tonk piano preset sound in canon with those high winds. And again, if I add the other instruments, you get loud and clear the sense of overlapping musics. Hyperactive cartoon-like clarinet, piccolo and synthesizer, equally hyperactive but entirely different brass, and a reassuring rocking bass clarinet and cello figure. And yet, through this extraordinary disparateness, there is homogeneity. What Adams is after, above and beyond the hyper-detailed activity, or you might say hyperactive detail, is what he calls tonality of mood. Let me just read you something he, he said uh, just a couple of years after this, this piece was composed. What I notice in recent pieces is that I've become even more openly embracing of a certain ambiance or tonality in American music. And I don't mean a tonality like B minor. I'm talking about a tonality of mood. I'm very deeply attached to American art, painting, literature, poetry, and for sure, American music. Lately, I've been reading a lot of contemporary American works of fiction, 
You know, for years I read fiction from the 19th century or 18th century, a lot of German literature and French literature. But lately I've been reading works by novelists like Russell Banks, Paul Auster, Cormac McCarthy. And right now I'm reading Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. These things always have a way of finding a route into my music, no matter how subliminal the influence or the reference may be. So, I think I'm going through a very strong, possibly even self-consciously American phase right now. But of course, the ghost of the Austrian Schoenberg remains a constant. You remember I was talking about falling thirds just now. A key theme to Schoenberg's chamber symphony features a falling third. Now, listen to the horn, the trumpet and the oboe here in Adams's work. Just a thread of recall trying to find that third. That searching, that playfulness with our expectations is, in the context, almost cartoon-like. Will Tom get Jerry? It's very interesting that while Schoenberg lies well within the DNA of this piece, Adams has been very dismissive of the later generation of composers who adopted his principles. He said, what particularly offended me about composers like Boulez, Stockhausen and Berio was their absolute deafness to popular music, to rock and to jazz. I just couldn't believe that somebody could be a composer in the United States and not want to absorb all the Dionysian energy and colour in the world of pop music and do something with it. I was keenly aware of how the vernacular tradition had been the wellspring for many of the great European composers, from Bach through Brahms and Bartok and Ravel. The middle movement of John Adams's Chambers Symphony does at least to start with what it says on the tin. It's called Aria with Walking Bass, another homage to Stravinsky. Listen to this from the finale of Stravinsky's octet, stepwise ascending flute arioso and bassoon walking bass. And now, John Adams's aria with walking bass. The flute has become the trombone, and the bassoon has been joined by the double bass. Just now the trumpet joins in what sounds like a cannon with the trombone, but it's actually the essence of the walking bass melody, slowed right down. Now listen to how Adams gradually assembles more colours, a bit like Bugs Bunny doing 
a Picasso. And the gentle aria, or duet, as it now is, in fact, between the trumpet and the trombone, just like some of the chorale writing in The Soldier's Tale, incidentally, that aria theme becomes blood-curdling shortly after in the hands of the oboe. Chirruping Hammond organ on the preset on the synth there. Another sense of the duality of this work. We're couched this current moment in the world of Stravinsky, but with an organ ostinato Tom Waits might have written. There's another pretty direct lift from Stravinsky's octet. Here are his bassoons in one of the variations from that work. So we get Stravinsky in homage once more in Adams's work. That figure, almost exactly the same. And he's added clarinet and bass clarinet. Adams himself is a clarinetist, incidentally, and he obviously couldn't resist it. <laughs> makes you realize that however much the minimalists may claim to have more or less invented music which endlessly repeats small cells, Stravinsky was there before them. An ever-present hallmark of this work as a whole is constant ebb and flow against a strong pulse, which is provided by percussion in the first movement, as you heard, walking bass in the second movement, and percussion again in the third and final section, as we'll see. That's definitely another key to what Adams describes as this tonality of mood. But the complexity, the detail of this work, the deeper you analyze this music, the further there seems to be to go. The deeper you analyze this music, the more you might need analysis yourself. But seriously, his color range is astonishing. Listen, for instance, to the brooding nightmare in the city way he concludes this movement, bristling conga, murmuring clarinets. <laughs> Composer Georgi Ligeti said back in 1978 that recalcitrant machinery, unmanageable automata have always fascinated me. And John Adams could well have said the same thing. The Chamber Symphony as a whole, and certainly the third movement, entitled Roadrunner, 
teams with traits of uncontrollable mechanisms which are restrained or diverted or end up falling apart like the toys that kids use, abuse, and then discard. Maybe on some level, Adams is sending up the slickly oiled mechanisms of pure minimalism here with extremely complex mechanisms, comparable, he says, to a salad spinner, which is curious. I don't know about you, but the salad spinner I have at home is quite a simple piece of mechanism. Anyway, you hear the cramped and chromatic world of Arnold Schoenberg and a crazy kaleidoscope from the world of Looney Tunes. I'm just going to reveal the various ingredients at the start in Adams's complex lettuce tosser. Firstly, bassoon, the contrabassoon, and the double bass. A driving jive in and around the beat. I'll show you. One, two, three, four. Another jivey motif over the top in the piccolo and the E-flat clarinet playing pretty much whenever the bass instruments aren't. Then, in addition, a set of what you might call queasy swells on the second and the fourth beat of the bar in the horn, the trumpet and the trombone. the side drum rim, a foxtrot-like texture, also pugnacious bass drum, and a chompy synthesizer setting. Just listen to the synthesizer and percussion alone. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the whole tossed salad. And what you just heard there in the winds, a choppy but drawn-out triplet figure against the manic rush of everyone else, is another inflection, I think, from Schoenberg's Chamber Symphony. So much of John Adams's mantra here, again, is actually to be playful, however extreme the music may sound. This movement is called Roadrunner, after all, and it requires high-end virtuosity, like this big octane E-flat clarinet and bass clarinet, which then gives way to piccolo and oboe. And what of the violin? Cramped, constricted chromaticism, Redland of Schoenberg, together with brazen double stops, again, two notes at once, perhaps courtesy of Stravinsky's Soldier's Tale.
Once again, you notice slow, almost painfully slow, stepwise ascent. Every phrase has ambition. Adams is brilliant at creating contrast without straying too far from his mold. Have a listen to this new texture, the individual ideas striving for some kind of closer common purpose. By bit, the violin manages to gain the upper hand. The other instruments sputter out, all except the percussion, who makes a valiant effort to cling on, but eventually even he is tossed aside. There is a violin, ladies and gentlemen. She must have a cadenza. Like all good cadenzas, we get a reprise of much of the texture and essential melodic hallmarks of the movement as a whole. And gradually the ensemble, the machine, cranks itself up back up for a short final section. And right at the end we get our own shock of recognition. A near as damn it direct quote from the end of Schoenberg's Chamber Symphony. I showed you a little bit of it earlier, that primary theme. Here it is in full form. Well, here it is in Adam's version, mildly twisted to suit his purpose. And he cuts the piece dead. A bit like one of those mechanical piano rolls. Suddenly there's nothing more. An abrupt conclusion to a piece which, whilst being absolutely Adams, has drawn together Wren and Stimpy, Tom and Jerry, as well as the claustrophobic 15 voices clamoring for attention, which is Schoenberg's chamber symphony, via Stravinsky, via Adams' own highly individual take on minimalist procedures. Not exactly the children's piece he set out to write, but if my children are anything to go by, it encourages an extreme and highly enthusiastic response. It's not, I can tell you, the music to play at bedtime. Time for some questions. If you'd like to raise your hand, we'll get a microphone to you. Lady at the back. Do you think that minimalism will stand the test of time better than serialism? Ooh. That's a bit like asking if I like Gorda Brown better than Tony Blair. I would like to believe that there is a huge amount of space in the world for both disciplines. 
the great thing about the musical world that we inhabit right now is I think we're far more in touch than uh, humankind has ever been before with the multiplicity of extraordinarily invigorating musics which exist across the globe. We have become, to use a much overused phrase, a global village, and that's nowhere more true than in music. So certainly I think minimalism, good examples of minimalism, of which there are many, aside the equally plentiful supply of um, examples of minimalism which are perhaps not such great pieces of music, the good examples should certainly stand the test of time because they borrow from the world of rock and pop and a great many other kind of philosophies and ideas besides which are in themselves endlessly stimulating. By the same token, Schoenberg made a, a, a very uh, arrogant, perhaps, prediction about serialism, the form of music that he invented, the tone row idea, as I was describing earlier, where you've got 12 semitones in any order you like, you're not allowed to repeat any one of them until all the other ones have been heard. He, as I say, arrogantly suggested that this would ensure the supremacy of German and Austrian music for at least a hundred years. Well, clearly, that wasn't true. Other musics have, if not taken over from serialism, they might have borrowed from it, they might be completely distinct from it, but they are doing very nicely, thank you very much. That being said, there had to be some change. At the end of the 19th century, this almost kind of overweened, overbearing, overcooked romanticism had reached a point where it simply couldn't go any further. And it took someone of Schoenberg's genius to be brave enough to stand up and say, there has to be an end to this. There has to be a new mantra, a new way of living through music. And it just so happened that his, his whole philosophy coincided with the 20th century, the century of wars, where a whole way of life for so many people throughout the world was swept away for good. So, in answer to your question, I think both forms are alive and well in various different kind of contexts, and long may they live. Another question? Oh, gentlemen. Uh, when he, he said that uh, he was embracing all things American and you played the honky-tonk piece, I was reminded of Sondheim's Sweeney Todd. Perhaps he was even embracing musical theatre. Well, it's highly possible. It's highly possible. I mean, uh, the great thing about John Adams, I always remember a wonderful comment he made that in the household, he said, where he grew up, Benny Goodman and Mozart were not seen as different from each other. In other words, there was a sense, and it's a sense that I absolutely myself share, that anyone who has any great interest in music will probably have a wonderfully broad and Catholic range of musical tastes. If you were to examine someone's iPod or look at someone's LP or CD collection, you may well find that they've got Bach. Equally, they might have the Beastie Boys. They'll have Mozart, they might have Motorhead. Who knows? Um, ballroom dancing, you know, whatever your particular thing is. That's the great truth about the best music, that it's a completely open canvas. And like I said earlier, we live in, in times when we're so much more aware of, of the multiplicity of different musics, which we can borrow from, immerse ourselves in, or choose to reject. John Adams is a classic example of that, and his music is a veritable potpourri of different ways with music. Well, ladies and gentlemen, together with my ensemble excellent device, we'll now perform for you John Adams's Chamber Symphony.